so kind of goofy, a little bit funny. They, uh, the words don't seem to go with the uh, folks who are speaking, you know, maybe because uh, we don't expect the silly voices out of these very large men, or, or we just don't expect for that to be the topic of conversation in the middle of some kind of athletic competition. For whatever reason, those things don't go together, and they sort of stand out for it, to us. Uh, we, we have all sorts of phrases in our language that work like that, words that don't really go together. Uh, you know, famous oxymorons like jum- jumbo shrimp, words that just don't seem to go together. This week was spring break, and uh, Katie, our, our children's minister, and her team had a great uh, event for kids this week in the, uh, at, on campus for a, a time for kids to come and hang out and have fun together. And I, I may or may not have had a few thoughts like this running through my mind while that event was going on and their serious fun that they were having. So maybe you'd describe uh, his account of Vacation Bible School as seriously funny uh, concerning the kids' serious fun. Words that don't really go together. Uh, last week, as we uh, tackled uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we talked about the Apostle Paul who really... Uh, really sort of chastises or admonishes or disciplines the, the folks in, in, in uh, Corinth, the, the church in Corinth, and he, he essentially calls them a big baby, you know, these words that don't really go together. But when we put them together, they, uh, they sort of grab our attention. And I think the church is a little bit like that. The church should be a place where these words that maybe don't go together, go together. Uh, we, we've used this language before here at Wallula and talking about being a people of grace. We want to be grace wholesalers. You know, we want to be a place where you get two much grace, if that's, if that's even possible. But it was spring break. My, my son had their first uh, scrimmage on his baseball team yesterday. The sun was finally out. I thought, I'm going to go watch some of this scrimmage. And, you know, I'm watching baseball. It's, it's theoretically a sunny kind of nice day. I'm, I'm going to need some peanuts for this. And so I, I bought some peanuts. I happened to be at the Sam's Club. So I bought a bag of peanuts. And now I have, you know, more peanuts than I could eat in the next three years or whatever, right? Uh, we want to be grace wholesalers along those lines. We want, we want to be a people who lavish grace uh, following God's example of how he extends grace to, to us. And so we want to be, be a people who, who love others well and who share grace well. And yet as a, as a church, as, as God's family, we're also uh, we're called to, to follow his truth to understand and to learn and to live by his truth. And so we have to speak where, you know, his word speaks. We need to be a people who, who also stand for his truth. And sometimes uh, in our world today, when we put these two words together, grace and truth, they don't seem to go together. But when they do, 
man, what an impact that can make. What a difference that can be. And I think that as we tackle 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going, to, we're going to discover that we can be the church. We can be the team, the place, the, the body of Christ that, that lives out both His grace and His truth. And the impact can be really powerful when we do that. God can really, truly make a difference in the world around us as we put these two words together in our life. And, and I think in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, we're going to deal with the entire chapter this morning, verse 1 through verse 21. I think this section of scripture teaches us three roles that we need to play in order to be the church and to really live out both that grace and truth in our life, to live in the tension of grace and truth. If you have your Bibles, I'd appreciate you opening them to the fourth chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, If you grabbed one of those worship packets on the way in, then on the back side of that bulletin is an outline. You can fill in the blanks as we work our way through these three rules. There's also a page number at the top of the outline that'll take you quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and one of the Bibles you can find in the chairs around you. Maybe you've downloaded the Wallula Church app then you can find all of that information on the app as well. Uh, So you can take notes there and follow along in this section of Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to deal with the entire chapter. And so this morning, uh, as we talk about these three roles, we're going to read through just the uh, section of Scripture that uh, we're talking about in each one of those roles, okay? So that's how we're going to tackle this uh, large section of Scripture this morning. Role number one, as we consider how we can be the church, is that we are stewards of the mysteries of God. We are stewards of the mysteries of God. Let's look at the first seven verses here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring the light and the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? All right, role number one is that we are the stewards of the mysteries of God. You go back to verse one. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. We just dive right in this morning uh, because there's some words in the very first verse that we have to unpack, that we have to sort of understand as we discern what these roles are that we need to be playing uh, in order to be the church. And, and, and this is how one should regard us. It's just that little word at the end of the first sentence, us, that maybe we would rush past. We would just assume that we're all on the same page and knowing who we're talking about. But I think we need to take just a minute and consider who Paul is addressing when he says, this is how you should regard us. 
You know, we've, we've talked already in the series that Paul uses that word apostle in different ways, that he uses it to describe himself as uh, an apostle, capital A, that New Testament-only position that God used to influence and grow and to plant the earliest churches. And, and Paul is talking about, in, in verse 1, certainly a capital A apostle. He's talking about himself in the 12. But I think the definition extends further than that. And when, when Paul is talking about us, he's talking about other church leaders. He's going to include Apollos in this discussion here briefly in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So we know he's not just talking about himself and the 12, but he's talking about other church leaders as well. Uh, earlier in the series, we, we discussed the fact that when you, you take away that capital A, that word apostle becomes a word that simply means one who is sent. And each one of us is sent by God. We have a mission, we have a purpose, we have a job to do as followers of Jesus, and so every one of us is that lowercase a apostle. And as you extend this definition of who Paul is talking about, I think he's really talking about every one of us, all believers, for sure. We're going to deal with this in a little bit. He is talking about church leaders, for sure. He is talking about capital A apostles. But I think as well, he says this is how you should regard us as followers of Jesus. This is what we should look like. We're uh, you should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. That word servants, we're going to deal with in just a minute, okay? Because I think as we go along in this section of Scripture, chapter 4, Paul addresses, he describes uh, how he thinks his servanthood looks. And so we're going to talk about servants in that second role. And so let's get to that last phrase here in verse 1. The mysteries of God, stewards of the mysteries of God. That, that phrase, mysteries of God, is not unique to this letter for Paul. Paul talks about the mystery of God all the time in his writings. In fact, if we sort of make a trip through his letters, we'll see it come up over and over again. If you turn just left in your Bible to the book of Romans, I just have to turn one page in mind. It's not very far. Romans chapter 16, verses 25 to 27, we'll see that same language used by Paul. In Romans chapter 16, verses 25 to 27, Paul says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel in the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God by glory for." forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Sometimes we hear that word mystery, right? And we, we think, man, there's, there's some secrets in scripture that we need to discern. And, and maybe the Corinthians and that, that church that Paul had planted so, uh, so caught up in wisdom and knowledge, maybe they had just a little bit of this, that there's some, there's some really secret stuff. There are some real mysteries that only we can figure out because uh, we kind of have it all together and, and we, we've studied philosophy and we know, you, you know what, we have all these great teachers and so maybe there are these secrets that we can figure out. But Paul says, no, it, it's not really a secret just for one person. This is a mystery that's been revealed. How does he describe it here in Romans chapter 16 to all the nations. This is a mystery for everyone. When Paul talks about the mystery of God, he includes everyone in that conversation. He wants us all to know this mystery. 
So if you turn over to another one of his letter that he writes to the church in Ephesus, uh, we call it the, the, the letter to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 7 through 10. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, Paul says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Uh, God is a really big God, and while we'll constantly and consistently be growing in relationship with Him, if we, we, we pay attention to His Word and we stick close to Him, we can continue to grow. We'll never figure everything out about God and, and, until maybe we're face-to-face with Him in eternity. But, but certainly God doesn't want to hide just snippets for us. He, he lavishes His grace on us, His forgiveness and His love. God overflows those things in our life and so the mystery of God is made known to the nations and he doesn't he doesn't just partial out his mystery or his love he gives it all to us he wants us to to know him more and more and more he wants us to experience his love in bigger and bigger ways even to the extent of uniting all things in him things in heaven and things on earth man if you paid attention to the news this week you know how big a job that is and that God God's grace and his love is big enough to accomplish even that extraordinary task. The mystery of God given to all the nations, and not just a trickle, but poured out on us. Let's turn over to another letter that he writes to uh, his protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Paul continues to use this language of mystery when he says, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now Paul doesn't come right out and say who the mystery of God is, who the mystery of godliness is caught up in, but do you recognize the description? He was manifested in the flesh. The Word became flesh. Jesus left paradise and was born an infant. He lived and he ministered. He walked the same kinds of dusty roads that we walked. He experienced the same ups and downs in life, the same kinds of ups and downs in life that we experience. He gave up paradise to put on flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory, ascended back into heaven. The the mystery of God is is not a secret that God wishes to keep. It's it's the story of Jesus. It's the difference that his son has made in the world with his choice to enter the world and ultimately to die on the cross and to be buried in the tomb and to raise from that tomb on the third day, conquering death itself. The mystery of God, he desires to be known by all nations and for everyone to experience his love and his grace in this huge way. That's the mystery of God. And Paul describes us as stewards of that mystery, of stewards of the story of Jesus. 
Now, when you, when you think about this word steward, it's a, it's a word that if you've been hanging out at Wallula for a while, you've probably heard before. We've used this language before. And if you've been here through the years, you know that we typically use this language when we talk about money, when we talk about stuff, when we talk about the physical resources that God has given us. And it makes a lot of sense in that context. In fact, in the very best story in Scripture, the very best description that I think we have of a steward is in the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 39, and before and, and after, the story of Joseph there. And, and we, we get the story of Joseph. Joseph had a rough life. He was a guy who, who grew up the favorite of his dad, and his brother sort of resented it for him. Not sort of, they resented him for it. Uh, so much so that eventually they, they, they put him in a hole until some guys go, come traveling by and they sell him into slavery in Egypt. And, and so that's Joseph's life. He's sold into slavery, he ends up in Egypt. He's purchased by this guy by the name of Potiphar who realizes that Joseph kind of has things together, that Joseph is a smart guy, he's, he's, he's got a good head on his shoulders, that God is honoring him, and, and Potiphar wouldn't have used those words, but that's how Scripture describes uh, God and his relationship as remaining faithful to Joseph. And so eventually Potiphar puts Joseph in charge of his entire household. He's in charge of his business uh, transactions. He's in charge of managing the assets and the business in the household. He's in charge of the relationships and the, and, and the household servants. Uh, it's sort of Potiphar and then Joseph in Potiphar's house. Uh, Joseph is living out this role of steward. Somebody who is in charge of something that doesn't really belong to him. Uh, God describes us as stewards of the mysteries of God. You know, he, Paul is going to go on in these first seven verses to say, look, you, you don't have no right to boast because everything you have, you've received from somebody. We've received everything we have, whether that's a physical resource, whether that's the, the giftedness that Paul has already talked about in 1 Corinthians. No matter what it is that we're thinking about, we've received that from Jesus. We've received that from God, our Creator sustainer, redeemer, God. And so it's because of that that we have no room to boast and that we are stewards. We've given this responsibility to manage all of those things. We're responsible to, to oversee all of those things. When you think about the church, you know, we, we talk about church leadership and, and certainly as Paul talks about us, he's, he's including church leaders in that conversation. And when we think about leaders here at Wallula, we'll talk about church elders. And if you, if you look through uh, the, the two best descriptions of elders in, in the New Testament in 1 Timothy 3 and then in Titus 1, you'll see that the Elders are responsible for a bunch of stuff in the church. They're responsible for the teaching and preaching of sound doctrine. They're responsible for protecting the church from false teachers and teachings. They're responsible for equipping people for ministry, for interceding and, and the prayer for the needs of the church, for exemplifying the Christian life, for maintaining mutual accountability, for administering church discipline. They're responsible for the physical assets of, of the family, of the team, uh, stuff uh, like how to take care of staff, the finances of the church, the property that the church owns. They're responsible for, well, the whole household, the entire shooting match, everything. The, the elders are, are responsible in, in their relationship and their submission to Christ and responsible in leading that out in the church. They're stewards of God's family. They're stewards of the mysteries 
of God. Verse 2 talks about this. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful, that they, they, they uh, are faithful just like Joseph, even when things got tough. One day Joseph came home uh, while Potiphar was gone, and, and Potiphar's wife was there, and, and she noticed that, well, Joseph was an attractive guy. He not only had a good head on his shoulders, but he was an attractive enough guy, and, and she made advances to Joseph, and Joseph had a choice to make, didn't he? He had to decide, will I, will I give in to this temptation and ignore my responsibility to Potiphar and to my God, or will I follow after what God would have me to do? And so Joseph decides, I'm going to follow after God. I'm going to remain faithful to him as he's remained faithful to me. And, and Potiphar's wife is upset by this. And so when Potiphar returns, she claims that Joseph tried to, to rape her and Potiphar's, Potiphar did anything a husband, any other husband would do when his wife claims or has experienced that, he had this guy, you know, taken care of, thrown into jail. So Joseph remained faithful even in the, even in the face of, of danger and opposition. And we have that same responsibility to remain faithful as stewards of the mysteries of God. Uh, no matter what those around us are, are, are saying, that's what Paul essentially says in verse 3 and following, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything uh, against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. It doesn't matter what you all say, and it doesn't even matter what I think in as much as it matters what God, what Jesus sees in my life. Therefore, in verse 5, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one another uh, against the other. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it. The only opinion that matters uh, to, to Paul is, is God's opinion and his judgment. And, and so he, he continues uh, to try to be faithful, even in the, op, in the face of opposition, just like Joseph was faithful, even in the face of opposition as a steward of the mysteries of God. Rule number one is that we're stewards of the mysteries of God. Rule number two is that we are servants of Christ. And so we get back to that word that we left in, in verse 1 of chapter 4 uh, that we're described as stewards of the mysteries of God and as servants of Christ. And, and I think what we read in verses 8 through 13 of chapter 4 is really Paul's description of his servanthood to Jesus. Let's see what it says in verses 8 through 13. Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. In would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrespect. 
repute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst and we're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled we bless, when persecuted we endure, when slandered we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. All right, so let's work our way through Paul's description of his own servanthood here. It begins in verse 8 by saying, Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings and would that you did reign so that uh, we might share the rule with you. Paul's already talked a little bit about uh, spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians, and we're going to deal with that later this year as we talk about spiritual gifts, and he continues that conversation in the book of 1 Corinthians. And I, I don't know, I couldn't make a list of all of Paul's spiritual gifts, but I do think that Paul has the spiritual gift of sarcasm, because that's, that's what we're reading here in verse 8, right? He says, oh, you guys have it all figured out. You've got everything you need. You you don't need to pay attention to what I've said before, to my example that I lived out among you. Probably don't even bother reading this letter because you've got it handled. It reminds me of conversations I have with my my son on occasion. I'll say, hey, Clayton, how's homework coming? And he'll say, I got it. I've got it handled. I say, well, what's the difference between the homework that you started two hours, hours ago and the homework you have left now? What's the progress you've made? Oh, Dad, don't worry about it. I've got it handled. And, and I wish that that was just an attitude that we carried around when we were young, right? But, but I still carry that around. In fact, I tell my kids sometimes when they, they make a choice and they kind of experience what happens with that choice, and, and I'll say, oh man, uh, you know, if we just listened to dad in the first place, he's right 99.9% of the time, right? I mean, we like to think we've got it handled. We like to think we know best, that we have all the information we need, we have all the wisdom we need. We've got everything we need. And Paul begins in this kind of sarcastic way of saying, that's where you're at, guys. Why do you think this? He goes on in verse 9 to say, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. I think Paul begins to describe his servanthood, and and as he begins to describe what he looks like as a servant of Jesus, we need to decide what, what best describes the way that we are serving Christ. Uh, do you see the difference here? Paul says as an apostle, as a, as a steward of the mysteries of God, as a servant of Christ, we are fools for his sake. But you are wise. You want to be presented as wise. We're weak, but you want to look strong. You're, you want this place of honor, but we're consistently in disrepute. We're consistently looked down on. You know, how, how far out are we in our service to Jesus to, to where our, our, our reputation is at stake? That's essentially what Paul is saying. I'm so submitted, I'm so all in in my relationship with Jesus that I, it doesn't matter my reputation to anyone but Jesus. 
He goes on in verse 11 to say, To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. That's quite a description, isn't it? That Paul uses to describe himself as a servant of Jesus. It reminds, sometimes when I watch the news, I think, man, in our world, it's one giant competition to see who's the biggest victim. You know, it's like we're all racing to set up, these are the obstacles that I've had to overcome. Look at the hardships that I must endure. And I'm not sure, I don't think that's what Paul is doing here in verses 11 through 13. If anybody had the right, I suppose it would be Paul. Every time you turn around, Paul is being shipwrecked or beaten up or, or imprisoned. I mean, Paul is the guy, if anybody had the right to say, man, I've had all of these obstacles, and yet I still strive to serve Jesus. If anybody had the right, it would be him to play sort of that victim card. But I don't think that's what he, he's, he's trying to communicate here. I think what he's trying to communicate is that I'm, I'm so committed to my service to Jesus that no matter what happens, I'm going to continue in that service. So you go back to verse 1, and there's a Greek word that's used that, that is translated as servant. It's a Greek word that's used only 20 other times in the New Testament to describe for the word servant. And I'm going to struggle with this, and so some of you who are smarter than me can, can pronounce all this stuff correctly later. But uh, that Greek word is hyperetes. And hyperetes is this Greek word that we read in verse 1 for servant. And, and when you come across this Greek word, it's, it's uh, sort of a, it, it, it's kind of at the top of the servant ladder. You know, it, it closely follows that idea of steward. Uh, you think about our story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 39. He was kind of at the top of that servant ladder. You know, he had all these other servants in his charge. He was responsible for them. And, and so that's sort of the description we get here with this first word. You go other places in the New Testament and you'll read the word diakonos, which is the word that we translate as deacon in the New Testament. It's used 29 times in most... Uh, most often it describes this specific position in the church. You, you, uh, recently we had our ministry team leader, our ministry team leader serve the role as deacons and deaconesses in, in, uh, at Wallula. And so uh, that's usually uh, this specific uh, position in the church. It's kind of next on that, falls just under uh, on the servant ladder. And then the last Greek word that's used far and away the most times in the New Testament for servant is doulos. It's uh, 120 times we translate doulos as servant. And sometimes when you come across this word, it'll be translated as bond servant, which just carries this little heavier emphasis. You know, if, if you're a bond servant, you're at the bottom of that servant ladder. You are, you are a slave. You know, if we, were, if we were translating it in English, it would be best translated probably as slave. That's how we would communicate this idea. You, you, are, completely, you are completely at the, at the mercy of your master, of your owner. And, and so we need all three of these Greek words because, see, Paul is, Paul is describing for the, to each of us you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. 
to each of us as followers of Jesus that we have this choice. Right? We have a choice where we're going to fall on this servant ladder. And really, in the eyes of Jesus, we need to flip that ladder upside down. Because we need to be uh, more of a bondservant than the steward, even. We want to be fully committed and fully submitted to following Jesus. Even to the point that we would go through all this stuff that Paul describes have gone, have, having gone through. That he is he's suffering uh, all these things. That when others are honored, you know, he's, he's looked down on. It doesn't matter. Those, those comments and those observations matter not. Those opinions matter not. The only opinion that matters is God. How willing, how, how much are we submitted to the lordship of Jesus, to his servanthood? Where would our service be described in this contrast between the Corinthians and Paul? Where do we fall? We're servants of Jesus, rule number two. Rule number three is that the church is active. Let's look at verses 14 to 21. Verse 14 says this, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. If you had to find sort of the heart of this letter, 1 Corinthians, it would be uh, in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. You know, you, you ought to underline those verses in your Bibles. It's the heart of this, uh, of what Paul is trying to communicate to the church in Corinth. He said some tough stuff. Uh, last week, you know, I described chapter 3 as being one of those chapters that's hard to preach in Scripture. It's hard to, to sort of speak those words of discipline into, into people's life knowing that, that I fail all the time. Next week will be a difficult uh, chapter to, to teach and to preach and to work through uh, of words of, of discipline and admonishment from, from God. And it, it's hard to, to speak those things because we, we don't usually use that kind of language. You know, Paul, though, is saying, look, I, I, I'm not just hammering on you. I'm not just trying to beat down because of the mistakes you've made. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish. That word literally means to come alongside. You know, I want, I want to be in relationship with you and to help guide you and lead you through this. Admonish you as my beloved children. Right? For though you have countless guides in Christ, you've got all this information, you have all these great teachers, you have all this collected wisdom, you do not have many fathers, because I, uh, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And, and so Paul's saying, I want to be your father in Christ. I want to be your spiritual father. And dads just have a, a certain way of speaking, don't they? And, and sometimes it makes a lot of sense, and sometimes maybe it makes less sense. I, I, I found a website full of dad jokes. I'm way funnier than this. These weren't, wouldn't be dad jokes in my house. But, you know, dads have a special way of communicating, and sometimes with jokes that we, uh, we, we call dad jokes. For instance, this one. This graveyard looks overcrowded. People must be dying to get in there. Right? That's a dad, like I said, it's a dad joke, huh? You can't expect too much. Or maybe this one. You want to hear a joke about paper. Never mind, it's terrible. 
It, it's just pity at this point, you know, you don't, you don't have to do that. Or maybe this one, what do you call somebody with no body and no nose? Nobody knows, right? These, these goofy dad jokes that, you know, dads have this special way of communicating, and maybe they're really bad jokes. But dads also have this responsibility to discipline their children, to admonish their children. Now, hopefully they're admonishing and not just disciplining. There's a difference here, huh? Paul's saying, I don't want to embarrass you. I don't want to make you ashamed. I don't want to discipline you in such a way that you, you, you don't like me, that you won't listen to me, that you don't respect me. I want to come alongside you. And sometimes while coming alongside you, that means saying some tough stuff, sharing some difficult lessons. But I want to encourage you through that as well. Oh, we need, we need and we need to be these spiritual parents in, in other believers' lives. So that we might, we might be able to say, to, to imitate what Paul says in verse 16. I urge you then, be imitators of me. I, that's a really powerful thing to say, isn't it? I, I rarely have the guts to be able to say that. Be imitators of me. And yet Paul, as a steward of the mysteries of God, as a servant to Jesus, has the guts, the courage, to be able to say, I want you to follow me as I follow Jesus. Look like me. And we might say, well, yeah, sure, this is the Apostle Paul, capital A Paul, sure, he can say, follow me, be imitators of me. But notice verse 17. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. In other words, he says, look, follow me, be, imita- be imitators of me, but imitate Timothy as well, because Timothy is imitating me as I imitate Jesus. See, it all, it all has to flow from Jesus, doesn't it? That's the whole point. But as Paul follows Jesus and as Timothy follows Paul, then we can follow Timothy. And so every one of us, as stewards of the mystery of God, as servants of Christ, has this responsibility to be active, to be living in such a way that we can say out loud to those around us, be imitators of me. If you want to know what Jesus looks like, pay attention to me. He goes on in verse 18 to say, some are else arrogant as though I I were not coming to you but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people but their power in other words look I've got all this opposition and he's sort of saying in the first century but those people are are kind of social media tough right they've got these big opinions while I'm not away they've got all this all this momentum and they've got all this influence while I'm away we'll see what's really behind all of these words Because Paul isn't so interested in the words. He goes on to say in verse 20, uh, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. The family of God, the kingdom of God, the church, 
when we choose to be stewards of the mysteries of God and to serve others like Jesus served us, then we become the powerful influence in the world. When we love others, when we speak the truth, when we act on both of those things, when we unite those words that don't seem to go together in the same place, in the same relationships then we can, we can be active in the world and make a difference in the community that surrounds us. Because God does not consist in talk, but in power. He concludes in verse 21 by saying, What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? What do you wish? I, I think in essence Paul is saying, Look, we need both of these things. We need to experience once in a while the rod, the discipline of God. We need to be admonished inside the family of Christ. We have to have spiritual fathers who come alongside us and help us to find our path, our direction back to Him. We have to love in the midst of that discipline, certainly, and we have to love those who are outside of that relationship with Jesus who have yet to give in to the mystery that we're stewards of. You've watched on the news this college admissions scandal, stuff unfold. You've maybe read a little bit about that, all kinds of different folks involved in that whole process. There's there's one uh, executive who's involved in that scandal by the name of Bill McLaughlin. And Bill uh, started this, this impact investing firm with Bono. You know, the musician, the singer, all that stuff. I'm not hip enough to, to really know Bono well, but uh, some of you do. And, and together they started this impact investing firm. And, and the whole idea behind impact investing is that it targets money investments into making a difference in in social change or environmental change and making a difference in the world that that surrounds us. And and all of that saying, man, this is how we want to live and this is what we want to do with our money. You know, those words have some influence, but kind of... deflates that balloon, doesn't it, when that, that same guy is discovered to, to having bought his kids way into college or whatever he's vo- involved in, if he is involved in it. It kind of loses that impact. Those things that don't seem to go together, you know, uh, we have to put grace and truth together in a way that we can influence others and be that power of God in our communities. Let's stand and worship him now.